0: you've heard, we were overseas and I was coming through Dulles International Airport in Washington after being awake for 24 hours. And as you know, you get off those planes and you're sort of like cattle in a chute. You have to go with the flow with all the people. And I turned around a corner following the herd and on the wall in front of me was this picture, if you guys can put that up, Chris and Joe. Uh, this image was before me as a big billboard on the wall And if you look at that image, it might be hard to see. There's so much light in the room. It says there's a person in a dark tunnel. Uh, They're in the darkness, but they're looking out uh, towards the light sort of at the end of the tunnel. And uh, the phrase across the top of this billboard says, it will get brighter. And then the charge to us, the exhortation is to be optimistic. Optimism, pass it on. And I went and looked at this later on. Uh, the Passiton.com is a nonprofit that says it's essentially non-religious, non-sectarian, uh, and they want us to be generally optimistic and nice. You can look at that. And so even before I looked at their website or anything, I said to myself, "That's great. Optimism is a good thing. But what about people who are walking in this herd of folks who have a chronic illness that's not going to go away? What's, what's the foundation or the basis for optimism? What about the, the person who has a, a terminal medical diagnosis? What's their foundation? What about uh, those who've undergone great grief or suffering that they think is unremediable, it can't be, be changed? How, on what basis are you exhorting us to be optimistic? And so, As I thought about that, uh, we knew that we were coming to Psalm 130 and I want to say to you today that if you are in Christ, if you have come to Him as Savior, if you belong to Him, not just in a perfunctory I raise my hand at a meeting one day way, but in a living vital relationship on a daily basis where He is Savior and Lord with you, you have every foundation to be optimistic And we want to see that today by looking at Psalm 130. So on your worship guide, it's on page 12, and it's on the screen. This is uh, the 1984 NIV version of this psalm. And this is what Psalm 130 says. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord kept a record of sins. O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Because the Lord has unfailing love, and if you have an ESV Bible, you'll see that it's translated steadfast love, the same idea. Because of the Lord's unfailing love to us in Christ, we wait in optimistic hope. The foundation is the Lord's unfailing love in Christ. And the consequence to us is to wait in optimistic hope. We're going to look at this. We're going to see how the psalmist builds this under four heads. I'm not going to tell you what they are now. I'll try to point them out as we go along. In the first stanza, you see that if you want to grow in knowing the Lord's unfailing love and growing in optimistic or thankful hope, it means crying out, the Lord. He says, out of the depths, this is usually used for water that has rushed over someone's head. They're drowning in the depths. And there's no water mentioned here. So this person is sort of drowning in troubles. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. And he's really relying on a promise. God has already promised by the time the psalmist write that he will hear the prayers of his covenant people that he will listen to them when they turn to him and pray. And he says, Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears pay attention. Be attentive to my cry for mercy. Lord, I am looking for help. And I cry to you. Now, when you take this up, at least when I take it up and when many of us take it up, We think that if the Lord is attentive to our cry, it will mean immediate relief. But we find that this psalm is fulfilled in Christ, not the part about confessing sins, but the part about crying out to the Lord. That there is Jesus in the garden. Uh, Some manuscripts say that he is sweating blood that blood is dripping from him like great drops of sweat on the, on the ground. This is a, a, a medically validated phenomenon. It's called hematohidrosis. And it usually comes when a person's under great stress and distress. And what does Jesus say? He says, he cries out, Father, Abba, Father. If it's possible, will you take this cup for me? And the answer to that is no. You have to go and make atonement for the sins of your people. But the promise of Isaiah 53 is there to him. There is an optimism on the other side. The Lord vindicates him as the Son of God. He justifies him and shows that he's the righteous one by raising him from the dead. So, when we cry out, we often have to wait long. As Martin Luther's rendition of Psalm 130 uh, that we sang earlier says, Though I wait all night long, God will appear and he will hear. And so, what do we take from this if we're going to grow in this kind of waiting, optimistic hope? It simply is, first of all, to cry to the Lord. And I would say for me, this is a great challenge, rebuke. It exposes the limited degree of my own cultivation of habits of sanctification. When stress and trouble come, we go often everywhere to cry out to men before we cry out to the Lord. There's trouble or disorder in my home. Let me talk to my wife. She can straighten it out. Maybe if she changes her ways, everything will be ordered. Or if I'm sick, let me cry to my friends, my doctor. If I'm in trouble, let me cry to my lawyer first or or anybody else other than the Lord. And so one of the things by application for those who are in Christ, we want to say, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, will you remind me to cry and lay my complaint before the Lord before I give it to any person? Will you cultivate This happened in me, and I'm sorry that I've cried all around and neglected the one who actually can affect change or help or hope in my life. So that's really the first point, if we're going to grow in this area, is to cry to the Lord, to talk to Him about our troubles. The second thing that you see here, and it really is quite a contrast The psalmist turns from this confident cry to the Lord to looking at his own sin. He says, Oh Lord, if you kept a record of sins, if you marked sins, if you kept a score sheet, who could stand? Who could stand before the Lord? And we want to recognize this. If we come crying out, looking for help, in any way relying on our own merit, what we're going to find is that we'll have to fall face down in our faces and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. As Luther understood Psalm 130, in much the best life faileth. The best things that I do are tainted with pride and impure motives. When I look at the heart of a person, I find that who could stand before this holy one? who judges the the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But he turns immediately, pivots immediately, says, the Lord, with you there is forgiveness. And the fulfillment of this is obviously in Christ. It's a challenge to every one of us who are here. Do I really believe the gospel? Am I walking around letting myself be accused all the time, accusing myself, filled with guilt and shame, really denigrating that Christ has made a life, blood, sacrifice, atonement for the sins of his people that really provides real, full, free, and permanent forgiveness. That's the fulfillment of this this psalm. But with you, there is forgiveness. And here's the twist on it. Mercy causes us to fear. I think the NIV translation is great here. It says, Because you are merciful and forgiving, O just one, I tremble before you. And this is what the older theologians used to call having filial fear. The fear of a son, the fear of a daughter. It would be the idea of respect or honor to a father. Have you tasted this before? See, this usually only comes for us because we gloss over what we consider to be our trivial sins and it requires some technical or sin that's lived out before other people for us to really be humbled and receive mercy in a way that says, oh, I don't deserve this mercy. God, how could you be this kind to me? And it's impossible to believe that the cost of that forgiveness is the Son of God and to not tremble. Peter found this out. If you read through the book of Luke, you find very clearly there that Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you've returned, shepherd the flock. He says to him, watch and pray in the garden so that you won't fall into temptation. He says to him, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And there's Peter with all his hubris and bravado. He's the one who follows Jesus right into the courtyard of the high priest after he's arrested. And he's there warming himself by the fire. And it's the threat of a servant girl that makes him collapse. I hear your accent. You're from Galilee. Oh no, I don't even know who this man is. And at his third denial, just before the rooster crows, The Scripture says in Luke 22, you can look it up, that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Their eyes catch one another. What is that face? Well, I don't believe it's a face of recrimination, nor a face of anger, but a face and eyes of mercy that know full well the depth of Peter's sin and fickleness but is intending to go to a cross on his behalf that he might be forgiven and counted righteous forever, that he might be restored by the Holy Spirit as one of the 12 apostles. There's mercy there. And it says that Peter, seeing Jesus' gaze, went out and wept bitterly, grieving over his sin and moving now out of bitterness towards a new faith and repentance as time went by. So what does this have to do with waiting in hope? Well, we've said that when you cry out to the Lord, relief might not be immediate. But when you tremble under mercy, your cries to the Lord do not come with the normal demandingness that we would give. It wipes away impatience. It says, this is, how, this is the love of God for me that Christ would give himself for me. And he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? God's not holding out on me. In the depth of my woes, he hasn't forgotten me. I have the mark of that in the cross. That's clear. So, Lord, I trust your love. I wait. I wait. I wait without demanding us. That's trembling with mercy. I thirst. I wait. I, I hold myself before you. And that really brings us to the third point. We've said cry out. We've said tremble under mercy. And then really, the, the third point is to learn how to wait. Look at the next stanza of this inspired poem and song. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. I think it's important here. uh, The soul in Hebrew, as well as in Greek, can refer to the non material part of us, it can refer to the whole person. I think in this situation, at least in application, you probably can't uh, determine this linguistically, but by way of application, I think it's important to distinguish that you might be trapped in certain circumstances physically or morally that you can't run away from. And this is why difficulties in marriage are always so helpful. I've made a vow that I can't run away from. But it's possible to be constrained physically but not have the immaterial part of you be still. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. My heart waits, my mind waits for His deliverance. Now, when that's true on the inside, it will show up on the outside as well in a whole person. And he says, I, I wait, my soul waits for the Lord, and in his word I put my hope. What is this word? Well, I think when you look at the, the arc of the entire Bible, this, this word is very simply presented to us in Colossians that the sum of the gospel for these Gentiles is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That if you're in Christ, you've been joined to him. The Spirit testifies with your spirit that you are a son or daughter of God and it's a down payment on eternity. It's a down payment on a new creation that Jesus in rising from the dead has brought about on His shoulders a whole new resurrection creation that's without sin or death or tears. It's all new. And that's the word that we as believers, those who believe, put their hope in. And he says, then, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. And so the psalmist here gives us the illustration of the difficulty it is in waiting. And he alludes to probably military people who have to stay up all night and watch through the second and third watches of the night until the dawn breaks. When I was probably about 24, I don't know, I was young, um, and I was going to seminary, Shelley was really, my wife was pulling the weight of finances by working as a nurse. So after the first year of seminary, I thought I should do something respectable to make some money or whatnot. And I went out and got a job as a night watchman. They gave me a little blue uniform and some kind of patch and everything, and I looked official. I had to ride all the way from the northeast side of Philadelphia on a bus over to the southwest side. And my job was to be at a assisted living step-up nursing facility as a night watchman. And uh, one of my friends at seminary coaxed me into this, said, you know, it's a great time to memorize Hebrew vocabulary, you know, while you're sitting there all summer long. And What I didn't count on was that it was summertime in Philadelphia and there were no air conditioners there, but it gets hot and humid in Philadelphia. We were also living in an inside the house apartment with an 80 some year old lady from Germany who used to love to go around and clean and slam the doors. So I would be up all night and then I would go home and lay around sweaty with door slamming and not get any sleep. And I just remember after several days of that, I was probably near uh, psychotic, I, I wasn't well, uh, and I just remember being in there in the middle of the night, just tortured, waiting for the morning to come. When will the morning come so that I can get on that bus and go and try once again to get some sleep? I mean, just to finish that story, um, I only lasted a couple of weeks in that. I put in my notice and I said, yeah. I, so much for being noble and making some money. I'm going to go crazy here. So um, the point I want to make to you, though, is that it's hard to wait. It's hard to wait in hope. And so this, this is really convicting. Maybe not for you. Some of you are endowed, perhaps, with a personality structure that's more inclined towards being easygoing and patient, God bless you. I'm, I'm really thankful for you. But some um, are more tempestuous, and other things, I don't even know what to call it. And for me, it's very convicting to be in this for 45 years or ever how long it's been, um, and to see that this ability to wait in peace for the Lord to move and act is not cultivated very well in me. So I want to give those of you who maybe have struggles with waiting and seeing the work of it, Jesus is alive from the dead. And He can change us. If He can change me, He can change you. And the goal will be simply to begin to cultivate habits. What is it that the Lord is calling you to be patient about right now? To look to Him to wait on Him. Well, you know, you have a lot of helps. You can set your phone. I know everybody has a phone almost. Um, You can set your phone to beep you every hour. And you can just get up in the morning and say, Lord, I want to live out Psalm 130 by the Holy Spirit. I want to wait on You. I want to not pick this back up and worry about it. I want to not be fighting about it, having my mind chase it around like a a dog after a bone. I want to be still." So then after an hour, your phone can beep and you can just take 30 seconds to say, Lord, how'd it go? Am I growing in peace? And this is an old spiritual discipline. It goes back to the Counter-Reformation. And I think you'll find if you do that for two or three days that you would grow that the Holy Spirit would change you and grow you in waiting on the Lord and believing God's goodness. So the last thing that we want to say from this is really gets at the foundation of the whole thing that we can hope, we can cry out, we can tremble under mercy, we can learn to wait, and then we can have an assured hope based on God's unfailing love. He says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. And I just have to take an aside here for one second there's a theological, biblical understanding that separates Israel from the church that is wrong. And uh, if, if you don't like that, I'm sorry, you can talk to me afterwards. But when this says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, is it talking to you? Paul says that within Israel, all were not Israel. It was those people who had true saving faith as Christ was offered to them in the shadows. And then Christ comes and fulfills that. And then the church is the new Israel. Paul says in Galatians 6, Peace to all who keep this rule. What's this rule? Of faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. That's salvation. Those are the Israel of God. That's in Galatians 6. You can go look it up. So the Israel is the people of God, Jews and Gentiles now after the resurrection who are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself being the cornerstone. So I just only give you that divergence so that you say, this is for me, this is how I understand the Bible. These promises to Israel are fulfilled to me in Christ by grace and through faith. O Israel, O people of God, those of you who are in Christ, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is what? Unfailing love. Unfailing love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Steadfast love. The Hebrew is hesed, And flowing out of that unfailing love. You see, that gives you hope. That makes you optimistic. He says, with him, that is with the Lord, is full redemption. What is Redemption. Redemption is a payment to buy back someone or something. Where does redemption come from? We don't get to contribute to the payment price for our redemption or a new creation. It all comes full redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, through His death and resurrection, through His exaltation and pouring out of the Spirit. A new creation, as we said. He Himself, not us, He Himself will redeem or buy back Israel, the people of God, from all their sins. God is going to make all things new. He has redeemed His people in Christ. It's a finished deal. In cross, tomb, resurrection. He is redeeming those who are in Christ. He's he's redeeming us from our own sins and sufferings even now. And then He will redeem us fully in the future when all things are made through. And we hope and look forward to the return of Christ. C.S. Lewis has tried to demonstrate this to us in a book called The Great Divorce. And you can't press these stories into a theological mold. If you go read them, They're not supposed to be systematic theology. There are points that we would quibble about, but it makes the point in a story form. I know you're all mature enough to do that. And the, The Great Divorce is about people going to the outskirts of heaven and being given the choice, are you going to go for joy in this new creation? Or are you going to hang on to your sins, death, and the old life that you've had? And there's one particular man in that story who has a a sin pattern that it's a lust or a sin pattern, could be sexual, could be other things that dominates his life. And for Lewis, this is often given to us either by wearing dragon skin, as sort of a metaphor he uses, or having a lizard. So there's a man on the outskirts of heaven, and he has a lizard stuck to his shoulder. And the lizard is talking in his ear all the time, when he's confronted by an angelic being and the, the angel with all might, shining power says, if you would like, I can kill it. I can free you from your sins. And the fellow wants to make a deal. He goes, oh, I, I didn't know that we were talking about something so drastic as killing. Um, let me think about this for a little while. And the angel said, uh, Time is all present here. Either you'll let me kill it or not. And the man says, Well, I, you know, the lizard's whispering to him the whole time. The man says, Well, I think that he's quieter now. I think he'll behave himself. Maybe I can learn to manage him. Can I go forward towards heaven and just manage him? And the, the bright, shining being says, I can kill it, it must be killed. And he goes, well, why did you ask me? Why did you even start the conversation? Why don't you just kill it? And he said, you must consent. You must consent to me killing it. Finally, this dialogue goes on for a while. And out of frustration, and and this is the only man, uh, the only person in the great divorce who actually heads towards joy and towards heaven. He says, okay, just get it over with, kill it. Even if it kills me. And the angel grabs the lizard He he pulls it apart. Everybody screams. It's painful. And he throws it to the ground dead. And what you find is that this man, who was really only a phantom, starts to grow a real glorious body. He starts to be a person who's headed towards joy and towards heaven. But here's the, the, the kicker of the story, the way Lewis imagines this. The lizard now transforms his sin pattern is transformed into a great white stallion. And that stallion, he mounts and rides towards joy. And the point of that story in Lewis is that he's going to redeem everything in the new creation. Even your besetting sins that drive you to Christ in humility will become a thing of praise and glory. Not so that we could say, oh, let's go on sinning so that grace might increase, but it's the reality of our lives as long as they drive us to Christ. And our sufferings the same way will be transformed and made new. Just like with Job, what is the point of Job? The point of Job is that God's grace is sufficient to carry a person through through suffering, even when it's misunderstood, even when it's long. And so he will redeem everything. Christ has come to found a new creation. So as you think about that, we just want to ask this question, what is it for you? What is it for us? As a church family, we've had struggles lately. Is this Psalm true for us in this? Particularly, can I stop and tremble under mercy myself? Let me tremble under mercy myself. Let me cry out to the Lord and not to other people. Let me wait and hope. And solidly believe in the unfailing love of the Father that's expressed to us in Christ. And look around and envision everyone, everyone in Christ as being made new, whole, glorious, riding stallions that are the outcome of our sin and suffering. This is what Christ is about, and this is what he is doing. So, brothers and sisters, Psalm 130 gives us the foundation for a radical optimism that's beyond anything that the people at the Pass It On group can know. And that optimism comes out of the unfailing love of God expressed to us in Christ. And so we wait in hope. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and Lord, we have confessed our sins already today, but they're exposed to us again as we look at your word, and we just thank you that for those in Christ, he's a gracious and faithful Savior. Will you, Lord, have your way with us? Will you teach us by the Holy Spirit how to wait in hope? And Father, as we come uh, to the table that you have appointed for meeting with Christ in a special way, we strengthen us as a church and strengthen us individually, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.